All right. Attention, Social Brain <laughs> listeners. This is episode nine of The Social Brain. I'm Andrew Cooper Sansone, and uh, we are live. And this is Taylor Guthrie, co-host. Yeah. And uh, today, attention. <laughs> so we're going to be talking about attention. I mean, this this world that we live in today is is very chaotic. I think a lot of people can relate to that. We're constantly being kind of taken away from the things that, that maybe truly matter to us because of uh, notifications on our phone, because of emails, because of all of the just like tons of different options that we have to engage in in today's world. Um, and so I think that there's like a, a huge desire and kind of need that people are looking for ways to to figure out how to how to focus, um, how to really pay attention to the things that, that matter in our lives. Because we have family, we have responsibilities, we have all of these things that that need our undivided attention. Um, and so, a lot of the things that we're going to be talking about today are the fact that we kind of take for granted that we do have control over this. Right? There are a lot of aspects to attention, which we'll, we'll highlight, that are reflexive. That, that distract us, that bring us away from the things that we maybe want to have control over. Um, and I think the whole point of this show, I think really what it's kind of evolving into uh, is a way to give you as the listener some insight into how your mind works, how your brain works, uh, so that you really can gain some kind of modicum of control over uh, over these processes. I mean, we just talked about mindfulness. I think that's going to play into what we talk about today. Uh, but, but yeah, so... Uh, like Andrew said, uh, I'm Taylor Guthrie. I run the channel, The Cellular Republic. Uh, Andrew runs Sense of Mind. So uh, we'll, I guess, kick it off. Yeah, I was just going to um, note that we've got a chat going. Um, and if you have any questions about attention or the neuroscience of attention or really anything else that we talk about, let us know. Um, just drop them in the chat. I've whether you're on YouTube or Facebook or wherever you are. Um, but yeah, so we, like Taylor said, we're going to be talking about attention, which is a super important concept and ability that we have. And um, of course, the, maybe the best place to start is with a definition. So what is attention? Um, and maybe, yeah, do you want to, do you want to jump on that with the William James definition? Yeah, I think so. Uh, so, I mean, William James was, I think, way ahead of his time. This was one of like the earliest psychologists. This goes back to like 1890. Uh, he had this this really interesting quote that's kind of survived and it's been brought up in kind of the attention literature for a long time. And it's this idea that he said, you know, everyone knows what attention is. And like you as the listener, like we know, like there's, there's all of this information in the world, right? We're bringing in all of this stuff, uh, but there's this focalization, this like concentration of consciousness that we can't just bring in all of it. We have to kind of focus in on the things that are relevant for our behavior, for whatever kind of tasks or goals that we have going on in a moment. Um, and he, I think one of the, the really kind of highlighting points of his quote too, is he says that it finds its opposite in kind of the dazed and confused and not alert kind of a person that we know what the opposite of being able to pay attention is when we're groggy. The reason we're all addicted to coffee these days is it increases our ability to focus, to pay attention. Um, so that that has kind of survived because there is kind of an intuition to what this process is. We kind of all have a feeling of like we know how this kind of works. Yeah, and and what what Taylor's just talking about is this this bottleneck in our ability to actually perceive our environment. So you know you're watching this video right now, or you're listening to this as a podcast, and there's lots of other things going on in your sensory environment. There's um, all kinds of visual stuff outside of the screen and even on the screen, maybe. Um, and then all sorts of sounds, maybe, as well as other sensory stimuli that are coming in. And somehow you're able to single out and kind of amplify this one window of uh, space and this visual or sorry, this uh, auditory stream of information. Um, and that's what we're really talking about is we've got this huge sensory environment that's just array of things coming at us just being bombarded with it and so when we narrow down we're actually able to to pay attention we're, we're able to um <laughs> to focus in and do something because otherwise it would just be kind of chaotic to to be a person if that was how our minds work we were just 
always absorbing everything all at once, it'd be hard to to get anything done. Uh, it's, it's billions of bits of information that we're bringing in at any given moment. Uh, and I mean, you think about your, your visual landscape, right? Uh, even, I mean, if you're watching this on YouTube, uh, if even if you're listening to it, I mean, look around, you can see everything, but you're not really seeing everything, right? You're only really kind of taking in and kind of really putting stock in the things that are important for whatever it is that you have goals or tasks or uh, some kind of intention towards. So if your intention is to listen or to watch this YouTube video, you see all of the stuff that's maybe around your phone or your computer, but you're not really bringing it in. You're kind of, it's, it's kind of noise in the background and what you really want to pay attention to is kind of amplified. Except you might notice that, you know, if your phone goes off, all of a sudden your attention is directed to that and you're no longer paying attention or you're, you're kind of, we'll talk about this in more detail about how much you can actually split your attention. But um, it seems like there are, there's this controlled aspect of it. Um, and then there's this involuntary aspect where we just something come like someone says your name. That's a great example of where yeah. uh, you have learned this tendency to hear your name and pay attention to it. And that person might not even be talking about you specifically, but when you hear that stimulus, now all of a sudden you are involuntarily uh, directing your attention to that. And I think the goal really with a lot of this uh, is to figure out how to kind of fight that aspect, uh, because we all know the difference between like voluntary and involuntary stuff, right? If you have some type of tremor in your leg, you know that that's involuntary. That's just kind of happening to you. You don't have any control over it. Uh, but we do know that we can kind of move our eyes. We can direct our gaze to things that are important to us. Um, and really, it's there, there's a fine line there. Uh, we talked a lot. I mean, if you haven't seen our episode on mindfulness, uh, a lot of our daily life is getting caught up in that reflexive stuff, in thoughts that are just kind of arising and we're kind of getting lost in them. Um, I mean, Andrew brought up a great phone about our, our, our phone, a uh, great, great phone about our phone, <laughs> great point about our phone. Uh, it, we, we have been conditioned so much to the point where a, a lot of young people these days have actual like anxiety and panic attacks when they're separated from their phone. Right. Uh, and that little ping, I mean, I've even had situations where I have these like phantom vibrations, you know, where you like, oh, yeah. you think your phone's going off and that is enough to kind of bring you away. Um, but really what a lot of what we want to talk about today is how to distinguish between these, how to, and that's really what I think mindfulness really is, um, is taking that moment to take control, to kind of step back and reflect on the fact of like, am I being pulled in a certain direction or do I actually have control over where my focus, where my gaze is going right now? Yeah. Yeah. And I think we, uh, you know, just to, to touch on that, that the, um, that something we said in the last episode on mindfulness about, and I'm going to get the phrase wrong, but an unfocused mind is an unhappy mind, something like that. A wandering mind is an unhappy <laughs> wandering mind. mind. That's <laughs> so, um, you know, there's a lot to say about uh, how being focused is really good for our, our mental well-being, our happiness. So yeah. um, it's not the only thing, of course, but, but the inability to focus really causes a lot of problems in our life. Um, so we're talking about how there's all this sensory input all the time and our retinas like the, the, you know, the, um, cells in our eyeballs that are actually receiving light are receiving all of this, this visual stimuli. So if you're watching this video, you know, you're still receiving all of this information. Your retina is still registering those, that light. Um, but you're not really seeing it consciously. So now I think we could probably transition into talking about how sensory processing, how this works and how it relates to this process of attention. Yeah, and we, we've mentioned it on, on previous episodes on the show. Uh, there's, there's a big difference between kind of bottom up and top down processing. And I think especially for this episode, uh, it's really important to kind of understand what the bottom up stuff is, is like, how it works, uh, because we're going to see how attention kind of modulates that. Right. So as Andrew was just saying, like our eyes are, are bringing in all of this information. They're creating a map of the, the visual world. Uh, and 
there's actually a building process to creating perceptions. Like, like Andrew was saying, like there's stuff that we're, we're seeing and there's stuff that we're like, we're seeing, but we're not really like bringing it in. And that's really the difference between a sensation and a perception, right? Is that uh, we have this, if you go to the early processing region, so you have visual cortex, V1 is what they call it, is kind of this early processing region. And the cells in that region, they process really basic information. They, that cell will fire if it sees a line at a particular orientation. So if it's a diagonal line or a straight line, it has preferences, but it has to be in a very small, very particular spot in space. Um, and so that's how we kind of create this map. But then when you move away from V1 into kind of these higher order processing regions, now you have these this building process that happens that says, okay, there's a little line here and a little line here and a little line here. Let's put all of those together. Now we have this edge, right? And it recognizes an edge. And you move one step further, and now you have another region that's putting edges together. And it's like, okay, there's an edge here and an edge here. That's a corner, right? And once you kind of work through this whole processing stream, you're able to get to the point where you're like, okay, there's a corner here and a corner here, and there's four legs. I'm seeing a table, right? And you form a perception of a table, but that's a building process that's happened. And what we really want to kind of distinguish is that uh, we have so much information coming in and we have limited resources, right? We can't really form perceptions of everything. And that's really what we're kind of getting at. What attention is allowing us to do is to only form perceptions of the things that matter for whatever we're, we're dealing with. The other stuff is just kind of noise. It's just lines and orientations in space. But the other things are the things that we're really pulling out, that we're really kind of forming this coherent perception of that's important for kind of memory or whatever we're doing. Yeah, and then the, uh, the question, I guess, about attention is, well, I guess maybe we wanna, before we get to attention and the processing streams, do we want to talk a little bit about the the way that these processing streams are um, separated in the brain? Because yeah. um, what you just described is we're we're receiving these dots of light, you know, trillions of or I don't know how many it is, but <laughs> like a gazillion dots of light are hitting our retina at once, and then um, we're we're constructing a scene out of just basically statistical regularities in those mm -hmm. um, in in those patterns of light. And so, like you said, we can start to build up lines and then edges and then shapes, and then uh, we finally get to full-on objects like a, a human face. But um, but there's a little bit more to it than that, right? There's these. Uh, yeah the ventral and the dorsal processing streams. Um, so maybe you want to want to go into that a little bit. Yeah. So, uh, and this is going to be important when we kind of talk about different types of attention uh, later in the episode, uh, because what I was just describing was a particular pathway for object recognition, right? Uh, we're building these lines, these edges, these corners into a an actual semantic representation, right? I know what a table is. I can visualize a table. I can I can spin it around in 3D in my head because I've seen lots and lots of tables, right? Uh, and that is what has been built up in this kind of uh, this ventral stream that goes from these early visual regions to kind of the the t anterior temporal lobe, which kind of sits behind your ear here, um, and that's where a lot of language processing happens. That's where that's uh, kind of the gateway into to memory or creating these kind of semantic concepts of things out in the world. Uh, but there's this other this other pathway also that's more about localizing things. It's more about finding out where things are in space. So some kind of the colloquial way of talking about this is the what and the where pathway. Uh, and so the dorsal stream is really, uh, it's involved a lot in like proprioception and that's like where your body is in space. Uh, but it's also about locating kind of where things are in space, where things are moving to. Um, and that is really important when we're talking about like how to orient our gaze, like where our eyes need to go to be able to find things in particular spots in space. Um, and so as we get further on in the episode, we'll see that there's differences between spatial attention, 
finding stuff, something that's in a particular region in space and feature attention, which is actually looking for a particular object that you know exists because you've seen it. You have a memory of it. You're looking for a suitcase that's coming out on the track uh, as you get off the air, uh, airplane, right? Um, and there's very different kind of mechanisms involved in those. Yeah, and just to kind of like make this concrete for people, because um, you might be thinking, well, but whenever I see something, I see what it is and where it is at the same time. But there are studies of um, brain uh, patients with brain damage who um, you can dissociate that what and where pathway. So people will get damage to the what pathway and they will report that they're actually blind. They're not seeing anything in their visual field, like as you or I see it, but you can test that they can actually see where or at least how something is moving across their visual field by moving it across and then saying, which direction did that go in? And uh, they, they'll say, I don't know, I, I can't see. But then if you just say, well, what's your gut feeling? It's more likely than not, they'll be able to get the right direction, the correct orientation. The, the re so the where pathway is functioning, but the what pathway is shut off. And then similarly, or conversely, there's people who have damage to that where pathway and not to the what pathway. And I think um, there's at least some accounts that describe it like they're seeing um, a series of still images um, in their, that's like what their perception of the visual world is. So it's really dangerous for people with that kind of brain damage to try to um, walk across a busy street because they're not, it's really hard to time when those, how fast the cars are going if you can't actually perceive the motion. Um, so that's, you know, just to, to uh, expand on that a little bit, but that was a bit of a tangent. So um, <laughs> that would be like an extreme form of attention if you yeah. just like, Anyway, let's go. Let's go to attention. <laughs> what is attention? Um, how do we? How does it relate to these processing streams that we're talking about? Uh, so, I mean, what we just described was was kind of this bottom up process, right? Uh, and if you were thinking about the brain in kind of a serial way, uh, you'd think that like, okay, well, all of this stuff is built, and then we then kind of select from all of those perceptions what's important. Uh, but what's really, really fascinating about attention is that there are these kind of feedback mechanisms from these really high order areas. Uh, so areas in the frontal lobe that have these really kind of abstract concepts, they, they have access to memory, uh, they're able to form like concrete goals and, and really identify what it is that's important to us. Those regions are kind of in control of these early processing regions. And so you have all of this information coming in, right? But you have to have some way to differentiate the noise from what's important. Um, and so there tends to be this kind of top-down influence. And that's, I think, what attention really is, um, is, is very kind of top-down control saying, I let, let's say, for example, that you were looking for an apple, right? You have a concept from memory of what an apple looks like, right? Uh, you you know the color, you know the shape and all of these things. So you have this this like really strong concept in these high order areas that then feeds down to these early regions and says, if you see anything that's this shape, that's this color, I need you to boost the signals for it. I need you to to bring they call it like gain modulation. I need you to, to make the signal way higher than all of the stuff around it so that that apple pops out. Yeah, and I, um, I was just going to, sorry, I was just uh, looking up this quote um, because I think it, it just emphasizes what you just said uh, from, from this book, um, On Task, by David Vetter. He's a, a researcher at uh, Brown University, and this is a great book about, about executive function, but he's talking about attention here. And he says, when people pay attention to a particular stream of information, neural activity, neural activity is modified such that neurons firing to the relevant information are enhanced in a number of ways, while neurons coding distracting information are suppressed. So um, at least that first part where neurons are neurons firing to the relevant information are enhanced in a number of ways, kind of that was just what Taylor was talking about, but also more specifically that it's a a top-down process. So there are these, these higher cortical regions 
that are, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but that they are um, uh, directing even down to the thalamus, which is a really early visual processing mm -hmm. area, like a subcortical area, um, to look for specific uh, features in the visual environment. Yeah. And, and it's, I mean, this to me is one of the most fascinating parts about attention is that these early processing regions don't know what they're looking at, right? Like all they see is little lines in space. They haven't put the puzzle together yet. Somehow these, these higher order regions are able to kind of tell them that what they're looking at is important. And I mean, you see these on, on single cell studies with, with monkeys and all kinds of stuff. Uh, if, if you tell them to pay attention to something, that neuron will fire like crazy compared to when it's looking at it and it still cares about it, but it's just kind of looking at it. Um, and it's this idea that one of the things, uh, I think I've brought this up before, uh, I mentioned a lot. I mean, like Freud gets all of this crap in psychology for being this like weirdo. Uh, but one of the things that is really kind of paramount to think about with a lot of this stuff is uh, the power of the unconscious that there is a lot of information that's not making it to conscious awareness, right? And there's something about this mechanism that kind of brings these things kind of up above the volume of all of that noise that allows us to actually like perceive it, to have some type of awareness, to kind of manipulate it in our memory and use it for whatever task we're doing. Yeah, yeah, Freud is not complete, completely <laughs> crazy. He just... Yeah. <laughs> just kind of went off the rails with, you know, sex with your mother and all that kind of thing. <laughs> but um, let's see. Uh, so, so then I guess we're kind of touching on this biased competition model, right? And we, we haven't explicitly stated that, but um, there are these, uh, there, there's kind of like, like Taylor's saying, there's so much going on in our environment and um, to to process all of it would require, um, let's put it this way, areas of the brain to be working in overdrive or something like that because they're having to process more than what they're actually able to. Um, so, well, at least that that might be slightly controversial to say that, but it's uh, it's. <laughs> That, that bottleneck is there in the processing. So we have to favor certain um, certain stimuli over others. And um, that I guess that's kind of the basic idea behind the bias competition model. And I think that this, uh, this starts to get, I think, to where it can be really beneficial for, for people that are listening. Uh, because when you start to get into these higher order processing regions, right, you have this, this building process that we described from these lines that turn into edges and corners. When you get into some of the regions that are actually identifying objects, uh, there's a lot of competition in these areas because the same neurons can represent different types of information. So if you're looking at a cluttered scene where you have a bunch of different stuff and you have choices about what you could pay attention to, there's actually this kind of tug in those regions where uh, instead of them kind of picking one and just representing that, it's kind of this average between all of them. They haven't really figured out like what's important. And then all of a sudden, as soon as attention comes online, you are able to resolve that competition and all of the stuff that's irrelevant gets dropped and the things that are important get this huge boost. Um, and so that's really what a lot of the a lot of the research is kind of falling on these days is that like the role of attention is to really bias this this process this competition that's happening for cortical real estate uh, because you can't like these like I said these same neurons are used to represent different kinds of information so they can't represent everything all at once and there has to be something that allows them to pick one um, and so that's where it starts to be kind of useful for you as a listener is that like. There is, there's your modicum of control right there, but we're going to get into a lot of stuff uh, kind of as we move forward that gives you a lot of tools and things. But this is one of your first glimpses into kind of this process that like, like, oh, okay. So focus in general, if I really kind of direct my gaze, if I have some type of intention, if I really want to look at this opposed to this, then that's going to get boosted. 
that's going to become the highlight of my spotlight of attention. And that other stuff is going to turn into just kind of noise. It's going to turn into background. Yeah. Yeah. And you have a really great video on, on that, on goals and how attention um, kind of functions in there. So people should definitely check that out. Maybe we'll link that below too, but also your lecture on attention is great for getting some of the stuff we've already talked about. But um, so maybe we should, should we move on to talking about some of these brain uh, networks that are involved in attention so we can get a little more specific about the, the neuroscience going on here? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, because this is this is really where we start to to draw the line between distraction and control, um, and really to kind of bring up uh, ideas from past episodes, from kind of mindfulness and things like that. Uh, something that I've really kind of gravitated towards uh, with kind of mindfulness and meditation uh, is that it's it's really the ability to take control of this attentional process. Um, and so there's two kind of networks that really, really fall out when you're talking about um, attention. There's a, uh, a dorsal stream that's very tied to what we were talking about earlier with this kind of where pathway. Uh, and then there's a ventral stream that tends to be really tied to a lot of the kind of object rec recognition and feature stuff. Uh, but something that's really come out in the literature is that the dorsal stream tends to be one that's very kind of uh, correlated with control that when that one's on, I am, I am at in the driver's seat. I'm the one pointing the spotlight. I'm the one picking what I want to, to put my eyes on what I want to covertly pay attention to. Uh, but that when the other one is on, the other one is kind of in opposition to the, the dorsal stream. Um, and it's really looking for salient things. And so when I say salient, I say like important things, things that you may kind of like Andrew said earlier, your name is a great example. Um, if you're in a, a crowded restaurant or a crowded party or whatever it is, and there's like all of this noise and everything, and someone says your name on the other side of the room, you're going to orient to that. Uh, reflexively without having any control over that. Like your brain is looking for that information. Uh, and that's what I was, I was kind of hinting at with the unconscious. There's a ton of processes that are happening under the hood that are looking for things that are tied to our goals, that are tied to our beliefs about the world. Um, and so what that ventral stream is looking for is things that that are important for kind of your everyday life. And so it tends to be kind of a, a circuit breaker that turns off the control network because it's like, look, there's something important over here. Stop paying attention to this. And that's really what we want to kind of dig into as, as we move forward, because that's what we want to start to get kind of uh, control over. That's what we want to start to recognize and gain insight into. Yeah, and and perfect timing uh, in the chat. Get smart quick. Just asked weird question. How does one remain focused online? So that is perfect transition into how we can control this, uh, especially this dorsal attention network, um, and keep ourselves from being pulled away uh, by the salient stimuli from our, using our ventral network. But um, yeah, so so let's maybe get into that. What I think, I guess the first for me, like the first thing uh, to mention, and we'll get into this a little bit more in, in a second, is that just cutting out distraction is so important. Because like we're saying, yeah. even though we're saying, you know, you're looking at this video or you're listening to this podcast and you're, you are selecting that information and then kind of amplifying it in your brain, um, that other information is still hitting your retina. It's still getting in to some extent. And there's there's studies where people are listening to uh, two different streams of auditory information, like a st one story on this side and the other story on the other ear. And um, when they're asked to attend to one or the other, what happens is they they can report the the everything about the one that they're attending to, like the speaker's voice, what it sounded like, and especially, or importantly, the content of the yeah. story, the meaning of what's going on. But in the other ear, that story, if they're asked, okay, so the story that you didn't pay attention to, what what can you tell us about that? They're 
may be able to say about very general features of maybe the speaker's voice or maybe they caught a word over here or something like that, but it's these low level perceptual, uh, or sorry, these low level um, sensory features like the, the uh, just the, the tone of voice, you know, is a high or low and um, versus like when they're actually attending to it, they can get the meaning out of it. But what that tells you is that you're, you're still having to exert effort. Your brain is having to put this top-down attentional uh, process onto your auditory um, perception so that you're not distracted by that irrelevant information that act is actually getting into your brain. Um, so the first thing to answer your question, get smart quick, we'll get more deeper into this, but is to cut out distraction. So, you know, silence and uh, maybe turn <laughs> off your phone and do whatever you can to to get focused on one thing at a time. And I think you touched on some some really important stuff there. Uh, and I think there's a lot that we can kind of take from the example that you used too. Uh, I mean, especially online. Uh, I mean, I know when I'm working online, I'm not I'm not the best example of like how to stay focused uh, with like all of my PhD work and the classes that I teach and all. I have like 50 tabs open, uh, like four different desktops, uh, <laughs> and it's 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 really easy for me to like to hit kind of a wall with whatever, with whatever I'm working on, right? Uh, because controlled attention takes effort, right? You, you really have to engage. Uh, I mean, this is the whole point of, uh, of kind of meditation. And something we mentioned in our last episode is that uh, it's not that really practice meditators have really, really good sustained attention. They're able to get back on track when they get distracted. Um, but you hit these bottlenecks where it's, it's hard. There's this kind of pressure of like, oh man, I'm just like not creative right now. Ooh, but what's on this tab and what's over here and ooh, Facebook's open over here or, oh, let me look at my YouTube stats or whatever it is. Uh, having those things just within reach makes it really easy to be pulled over in that direction because, uh, Andrew mentioned, I, so I made the, uh, this video on, uh, the importance of goals, uh, when you're thinking about attention. And one of the, the really kind of hard things about today's world is that we have so much going on in our lives uh, compared to even like 100 years ago, right? Uh, we, we have like all of these, these different kind of social things that we're doing with like media and things. We have multiple responsibilities with the jobs we have compared to being like a farmer where you just like farmed all day, right? Uh, those different goals are in constant competition with one another. Um, and as soon as you hit kind of a roadblock with one of those goals, it's really easy for information about the other goals to start saying like, oh, hey, maybe you should start doing this or maybe you should start doing this. Um, because what I was talking about earlier with the ventral stream, the ventral stream is really tied into a lot of what we've talked about. We had a whole episode on the default mode network. Uh, it's really tied into memory. Um, and so the ventral stream knows what your goals are. It knows what you want to accomplish. It knows like what kind of things are like long term, because when you're paying attention to something, when you're on task, when you're like controlling attention, you're focused on right now. That's mindfulness, right? It's this present moment thing. Uh, but your goals tend to be long term. They tend to be about uh, what do I need to do for my family? What do I need to do for work? What do I need to do for all of the different responsibilities that I have at work? Um, and so because of that, there's this constant bubbling up of like, of like, oh, this might be important for that. And this might be important for that. And so those are the kind of things like when you get into mindfulness, I, I was watching something, uh, the Huberman, Sam Harris interview, uh, and there was this, he, Sam Harris was like, I challenge anyone to be able to sit for 30 seconds and not think about anything. Even if your life depended on it, if the world was going to end, you would not be able to do that. And that's, that's kind of tied into this idea is that like, we have so many competing intentions at any given time that are acting as a circuit breaker against our ability to stay on focus, to stay on task. Uh, and it's those things that you really need to gain insight into like, okay, where are those things coming from? How can I like set a set amount of time without distractions to focus just on this one? Uh, it's not easy to do. Yeah, that's that's really good. I, I love that that Sam Harris quote there because th he has a really another just related to that really funny um, little story from his book Waking Up, where he's 
he's in this, he's on meditation retreat and uh, there's this someone in his group who she's like, she thinks she's reached enlightenment. Like she's <laughs> no longer thinking anymore. She's just living fully in the present moment. And they go to this, uh, like this meditation teacher, this guy, and uh, and she's saying how she's reached enlightenment and all this and isn't having any, any thoughts. Um, and so he's like, oh, okay, well, all right, we're just all going to sit here until you have a thought. <laughs> and, so, and, and then he just says, I, it's great how he words it, but it's something like her face just melted like in a few minutes or, or a few seconds, her face just like melted into realizing like, oh no, I am not actually, uh, it's not actually, I'm not where I thought I was. I, I do actually still have thoughts and I feel like it's probably <laughs> impossible to actually stop having thoughts, let alone desirable. I don't, I don't think it would be, but but yeah, that's it's that's such a great point. And I think what some of what you're mentioning is kind of the context that we that we put ourselves in. And um, in that book on task by by David Better, he also talks about the fact that our smartphones, like Taylor was mentioning, we we can do literally almost well, not literally, <laughs> but almost anything on these. And you could you know, you could be. Uh, checking your email and then rapidly switch to checking your stocks and then switch again to a phone call and then be a, like making a TikTok and and people are doing that all the time and and so one of the difficulties is that your phone this is a kind of context you are you when you're looking at your phone um, you're kind of in this mode you're in the like smartphone viewing mode and so. <laughs> it can be really easy to get distracted when you do everything on that phone. So you're like forming associations with everything, with all these different goals that you have in your life. So it's really easy to get distracted because your phone is uh, connected to all your different goals in, in some way. Um, uh, anyway, I don't want to cut you off, Taylor. We did get another question in here. Um, so another weird question, why does TV music, TV, music, movies make us focus, but a book, meditation, and things of that nature, we struggle to focus. That's a good question. Uh, no, I think it leads into uh, what I was actually wanting to, to get to next. Uh, so you had this, this, this really good example of some of these studies that they've done uh, with kind of multiple auditory streams, right? Uh, someone's listening to one in this year and another one of this year, and they can only really pay attention to one of them. Um, <clears throat> Something that we haven't talked a lot about. Uh, so we talked about the default mode on a previous episode. And the default mode is kind of this storyteller. It's where a lot of these kind of internal thoughts are coming from. Uh, but what we haven't really talked about is that the default mode is also responsible for understanding narrative text, for understanding like uh, movies. So uh, they've done, Uri Hassan is, uh, is a big player in this space. Uh, and he's shown that like, you your early auditory cortex your the part that so we talked earlier about kind of visual stuff you have v1 just processes little lines and edges uh there's a very similar thing that happens in the auditory region where the very early regions are just processing tones and frequencies and you end up with this map of frequency space but as you move away from these early auditory regions you start to put those little sounds into words and then you move a little bit further and now you're putting those words into sentences and you're seeing whether there's like noun verb agreement and things like that um, but as you move away from that, you start to understand more of the context. You start to put sentences together. You start to understand uh, paragraphs. You, you realize that the word he is Bob from three sentences ago, right? You're, you're kind of putting these things together over time. And as you get into the default mode, you are processing an entire stream of information. You're understanding narrative. You're understanding motive. You're uh, kind of conceptualizing and imagining these different characters. It's a very involved process. Um, and one of the things that I really wanted to get into was this idea of divided attention. Um, something that's come up, I uh, actually reached out to, to Andrew Huberman. I didn't get a response, but uh, he's, he's talked on multiple podcasts about this idea that we can have kind of two different foci of attention. So we can pay attention to two things at once. Um, 
but really what I've seen from the literature is, and what I've seen from a lot of kind of the, the, the big people in the field is that, yes, we can divide our attention. We can like right now you can, you can kind of listen to music in the background while you're listening to this or whatever it is. And you can kind of have these multiple streams of attention, but there's really strict processing limits on that. If you really have to process like like that whole pathway that I just described to you, if you have to understand an entire narrative, then you're you're devoting all of your attentional resources to that. And so being able to kind of be brought into this entire movie, to this entire kind of song, uh, whatever it is, uh, really kind of captures a lot of these processing things that are going on. Uh, whereas and it's and it's also taking advantage of the regions that that aren't really uh, intensive in terms of like needing a lot of energy, needing a lot of like having to engage. Our default mode network is the default mode. It's it's what just kind of is reflexively comparing things to memory, uh, comparing things to our goals and our intentions. But the controlled aspect, the aspect that you're talking about with meditation, that's that's really hard because it's energy intensive. And the way that I really like to think about it, uh, and I think that I kind of split from Sam Harris on a lot of these things uh, when it comes to like uh, the self and kind of uh, our control of attention is that I think that there are certain aspects of attention that our entire process of controlling attention is making a decision to change, is making a decision to understand. And that requires something different than just reflexively taking things in. Right. It's like I I need to do this. I need to I need to be creative. I need to 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 put these things together to complete this task, whatever it is. I need to focus on a dot on the wall for 30 seconds. <laughs> uh, it all of that is geared towards making changes and in engaging plasticity mechanisms, right? Um, and I mean, one of the things I really like about a lot of the Huberman stuff uh, is that he talks about plasticity being uncomfortable. That reflexive stuff, stuff that is just kind of in line with our beliefs and uh, all the things that we do, that's really easy to just take in and just go with. But when we're changing, it feels uncomfortable and it uses a lot more resources. And so I think that's why it's, it's really hard to kind of stay in this kind of sustained attention focus versus just kind of taking in a movie or a book or whatever it is. Yeah, and I feel like it probably also uh, has to do with just your own preferences and your own, and like you're talking about the the changes that you've made in the past. So if you're like an avid reader, um, I mean, the other day I was walking down this path um, in the city I live in, and uh, there's this little girl, and there's this whole group of of school kids like in the park, and some of them are running around going crazy, some of them are just talking, and then there's this little girl just sitting there with a book just reading it and um and it just like gosh I was like wow she's she's got some really good uh attentional you know control to be able to stay focused on this book while there's all this craziness happening happening around her and uh, I think that that definitely maybe that has to do with her personality or her past like having just read lots and lots and lots of books to the point where it's it is easier for her. It is more reflexive to kind of just crack open that book and start reading. Um, or maybe it's, uh, you know, she's just sick of all these kids and, and all that. <laughs> but but the point is, like, I think our, our past and how we have used our attention in the past allows us to actually focus more easily on things that might not have come naturally before. And then the, the, the only other thing I was going to say about TV uh, or movies versus books is they're just they're also engaging way more of your your um, your sensory uh, uh, your various senses like your eyes and your ears and uh, maybe we'll get smell vision eventually and we'll be able to like smell all the scents and stuff <laughs> in a movie and it'll be even more immersive and um, so I think that's that's part of it too is where we are um, and like you said having to exert um, effort while reading, I mean, reading is a much more complicated process than even just listening to spoken, the same spoken words. Um, uh, so anyway, yeah. So I think it's a com a combination of what we've practiced in the past, what we're naturally drawn to, and then just what our, our brains more or less easily process. 
And I think the whole point of this is to really kind of gain insight into when these things are happening. Um, because I'm sure that a lot of people can relate to sitting down and reading and reading like three or four paragraphs or an entire page and then realizing that you didn't take any of that in. Uh, and then realizing too, that like you were engaged in self-talk, right? And so these, these, like I just mentioned, our ability to kind of form this kind of narrative perception to understand how these, these sentences and paragraphs work together, how they're associated with one another is using a lot of the same circuitry as our self-talk. And so if you're engaged in like thinking about the fight that you just had and like uh, going over all of these social situations that you're concerned about or what you have to do at work or whatever, you're not actually understanding what you're reading. You're not understanding any of the narrative stuff, right? Yeah, that's a great so, point. So that's really, I think what a lot of this is, is understanding that, uh, yes, we can have divided attention, uh, but it is very contingent on the processing demands of the things that we need to pay attention to. And I think one of the things, uh, Andrew and I have talked about this in the past, uh, is that usually when you're successfully dividing your attention, it's because one of the things that you're attending to is something that you've been able to automate. Is like you can, you can walk and chew gum uh, and that we're going to do uh, so a lot of this. Uh, so our next episode is going to be about interoception, about kind of forming kind of relationships with your body. Uh, but the episode we're going to do after that is about movement, is about kind of mastering motor control. Uh, that's going to be really tied to a lot of this stuff. That's why we're kind of building it up. Um, but what we'll kind of get to is that there's a lot of stuff kind of in the body that can be automated, that doesn't require a lot of kind of cognitive resources, or cognitive control. It can kind of just do it. Um, but there are other things that are very demanding. Um, and there's also kind of, you can pay attention to something visually and something auditory because they're actually using different processes. Yeah, that's, that is a really good point. The, the different, uh, modalities are really important because they're relying on different brain regions for the processing. Um, okay. So I guess this has all been, we've talked about multitasking without really talking about it, but <laughs> yeah. I think the point is like you, you can't really multitask. You can't do two things at the same time. And it's not just that it's not just that you have to switch from one to the other. It's that when you switch from one to the other, you there there's a, like kind of a lag it's like where you're not able to fully um engage with the material that you just switched to um in a way that at least the bottom line is that your performance on both tasks is going to go down if you're switching between them and that's like a yeah. really robust finding but what taylor is saying is that if one of them is automatic or if both tasks are automatic like walking and chewing gum then it's really pretty easy to do that. Um, um, yeah, I guess that's that's what I was going to say about that. But uh, but also, I, I think, yeah. Anyway, sorry, I got <laughs> caught up in that. <laughs> no, I I think I mean the idea of multitasking is really important because um, a lot of people uh, kind of have this false assumption that they're really good multitaskers, and uh, there could be a sense where you are kind of good. Uh, uh, the way that I see it is that. Uh, you can have a C at four things or you can have an A on one thing, uh, right? And that's usually what the literature is starting to kind of parse out, especially if there's like really intense processing demands on whatever it is that you're engaged in, the kind of tasks that you're, you're, you're doing. Um, and what Andrew was kind of getting at is, so it's called task switching in the literature. Um, uh, I sat down, uh, I haven't mentioned it, I sat down with with Mike Posner yesterday. He's an emeritus professor at the university I teach at. Uh, and he is like a, the godfather of attention. Uh, I mean, he's, I think, one of the most cited psychologists of all time. And, and I actually, I put that question to him um, because I was really interested. I had reached out to the, the Huberman podcast, tried to get some clarification on it. Um, and I said, what do you think about divided attention, about multitasking in general? Do you think that we're able to kind of have these multiple kind of focused attention spots, have like two things that we're attending to? Or do you think that it's more of kind of a task switching thing? And he, I think, was leaning a lot more towards this idea of uh, we can be doing multiple things at once, but we're rapidly switching from one to the other. And what Andrew was, was really hinting at is that there is a cost associated with that, that you can't just be like 
fully engaged in something and then switch to something else and be fully engaged in that. There's a ramping down of one and then a ramping up of the other. And I think a lot of people can intuitively like reflect on that in that like if I'm if I'm writing a paper and I get pulled away by Facebook or something or whatever it is, I'm like dating myself now talking about Facebook, but I, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but we're streaming to Facebook. So don't, don't, uh, okay. right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but what you'll notice is that when you go back to writing the paper, you really have to engage again. Um, and uh, someone just said, Google, Google Mike Posner's psychology. There's a rapper named Mike Posner. Yeah, uh, that's right. <laughs> but uh, no, you really have to, you have to ramp back up. You have to remember, okay, where was I at? Because what we just talked about was that this idea of kind of putting together narratives, putting together kind of these complex tasks really requires having all of these formal pieces, like all sequentially put together. And as soon as you distract away from that, you now have to come back and kind of reassemble it and figure out where you were, what was important, all of that kind of stuff. And so it really kind of, it, it's damning to whatever you're doing. Yeah. And there, there are um, a couple of things. There may be like a way around some of this, but it, it takes a lot of setup. Um, <laughs> the only other thing I want to mention before I get into that is uh, th there was one study. I can't remember who the authors are. I have to look back, but it, it was a while ago, and I don't think this has been replicated, but that like a small, small percentage of people don't show that um, task switching decrement uh, or sorry, um, in performance. So uh, they, they, I don't know how much take that with a grain of salt, because I don't think that that result has really been replicated. But there may be some some people out there who are able to do a couple things at once yeah. without really messing up their performance on either. Um, but anyway, probably not. Um, so anyway, the other thing was uh, one way that in the, it, again, this book, I highly recommend this book on task for a lot of the stuff we're talking about and um, just learning about how executive function happens in the brain on task by David Better. Um, he has this chapter on multitasking and um, there's this part where he's, he's talking about this playwright. I think it's Eugene O'Neill um, who had this really unique setup in his office where he worked. Uh, he had two different desks and um, one of the desks had a certain set of like trinkets and different, um, different things on it. And then the other desk had a completely different set of things on it. And I think they were even facing away from each other. So they were looking at different areas of the room. And it turns out that he would write, he, he, was, he could write two plays, um, not at the same time with both hands, but during like the same <laughs> period, by focusing on, um, or by by only writing one of the plays on one of the desks and the other play on the other desk, and um, better uh, this David better interprets that as being well he was he was doing a really good job of setting up a certain context where he only worked on uh, one play at a time, and then if he wanted to work on the other play, he would go to this completely different setting, this other context uh, with all these different visual stimuli. That So it was very distinct, and he was able to kind of easily task switch because it that context, each of those contexts had he had formed an association in his brain between, you know, play one and context one and play two and context two. So he was, he's, he was, a, um, I believe he, he won a Nobel prize in literature or something. So he was a really accomplished playwright and he was able to be sim not at the same time, but during the same year, the same period, he was able to be working on two plays at once that were both of really high quality, which is really rare for, um, for creators and writers and stuff. I think something that's really interesting about what you just said, uh, and this is this actually came up in my conversation with uh, with Mike Posner yesterday, was uh, when you think about attention, there's there's thresholds, right? You have all of this information in the world, yet somehow some of them hit some kind of a threshold that allows them into awareness, right? Uh, when we talk about the ventral stream, we're talking about like distractors that are kind of pulling you away. Something allowed that 
into awareness, right? Um, and I've always been really interested in what it is that kind of creates those those thresholds, right? And what I think, I mean, all of the work that I've done kind of with default mode and all of this stuff is that our our beliefs and our goals are really what are setting those thresholds. And so what's really interesting about what you just said, Andrew, is that this this person was able to create this this entire context that set up the thresholds of what was important in that context, right? Like this this space, and I think this is really important for listeners that are trying to improve their focus, is like you define a space. This space is for this. This space is for studying. This space is for writing. This space is for whatever. And the only information that's important in this space is the information that's pertinent to this task, to this behavior. And you're actually defining it for yourself in your brain. You're setting those thresholds of like, no, all of this other information is irrelevant right now because this context is for this kind of, and I mean, that's that's not easy. There's not a lot of people that can have these like two separate desks uh, in their office yeah. or whatever. So you have to get, you have to get creative with these processes. Um, but I think what's really kind of as we're coming up to time, what's really important with a lot of this stuff um, is understanding the power of, of belief, right, of identity, of your goals, uh, because that's really what's setting up a lot of the reflexive stuff. If uh, we had this question earlier about kind of emotional contagion and mirror neurons, a lot of that stuff is social in nature, right, is you're getting caught up in kind of the, the social environment. Um a lot of our distractors tend to be very social in nature, right? Uh, whether or not people are liking my tweets or whatever it is, these notifications that you're getting on your phone about uh, uh, friends that are reaching out to you or Snapchats you're doing or whatever it is, uh, those types of things are pulling your attention because you have a belief that they're important, right? And so really spending the time defining like, okay, who am I? Like, what is it that is really important to, to what I want to accomplish in life? Uh, is it that my values are centered around family? Is that my values are centered around being really productive at work? Like, if you really kind of take time to devalue things, I mean, this takes work. I think this is really what kind of Maslow's hierarchy is all about. It's like the self-actualization process is that time self-reflecting and actually doing values work. I mean, go see a therapist. You can do values work with therapists. Uh, there's like a whole like act therapy or whatever that gets into a lot of this stuff. But uh, really spending that frontal lobe time defining what it is that's important to you and saying like, and reflecting like, are those notifications important? Do I really need to be paying attention to that? Why is it such a powerful distractor? Why does it break my control of attention? Right. I think that's really what's going to give you a lot of power and control in your life. That's such a great point. Getting really clear on what is important to you and what your values are is going to let you is going to set you up for for being able to pay attention to the things that are actually relevant to those goals. Because, like you said, you're 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 putting it in that long term memory and you're setting it as that goal and that threshold. Um, yeah, that's really great. And and you know, just to tack on your point, I think a good question always to ask yourself is if you're getting distracted by social notifications or just thoughts about other people or things like that, are you focusing too much on what other people think about you? So like, in other words, is your sense of self too dependent on what other people say or think about you or, or even what's going on in their lives compared to your life? Um, but yeah, anyway, I think that's that's such a great point. You know, getting really clear on what what is important and then setting up your environment so that you can actually focus, you know, getting rid of distractions. Um, I would say probably not doing a lot of work on your smartphone, because like when we're talking about context, this is a context where you do everything on it. So um, it's it's just ripe for distraction. It's so easy to get distracted there. Um, anyway, I think we're running into our <laughs> time. Um, yeah. but yeah, thank everybody for being here, for checking out this episode of the social brain. Um, if you want more of this, please subscribe to both of our channels. I run the, uh, sense of mind and Taylor is the cellular Republic. Um, follow us on social media and follow this podcast, The Social Brain, on whatever podcast platform you use. Give us a five-star rating if you think <laughs> about it. Those are some ways you can support us without um, paying us any money. 
Yep. And and if you want some some cool swag, my my wife runs uh, an online gift shop. I'll I'll link that uh, in the description on on my video on my channel. Uh, some like neuroscience, psychology stuff, some mindfulness stuff that's really cool. Mugs and shirts and stuff. So, uh, yeah. And I I want to to kind of uh, reflect what what Andrew just said. Like I, I really appreciate the the people that are coming back, that are listening to us, that are supporting us. Uh, Bruce coming on late, but saying he's gonna rewatch it later. Like that's awesome. Uh, and that's what kind of keeps us doing this. We we called this channel the social brain because we are two people that that love talking about the brain and want to kind of help other people gain some insight and some some power over their own brain and their own mind. So uh, so thank you. Uh, follow us. <laughs> help yeah. us keep this going. So, yeah. And um, uh, just one other or two other things uh, before we get off. Um, so we will be setting up a patreon for the the social brain soon so be on the lookout for that we'll um set out notifications and everything if you want to support us that way um the other thing i just want to mention um that sense of mind my channel uh, was originally supported by a grant through the diamond mind foundation and we are no longer um associated with them uh it's a good foundation but just kind of going separate ways now. So I just, we are, um, sense of mind is now fully independent. Uh, so getting those follows, those subscriptions, those five-star ratings, likes, all that is super helpful. Um, thank you guys so much for being here. Awesome. We'll see you guys in a couple of weeks to talk about interoception, getting kind of a good relationship with your body. Awesome. See ya.